You are listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cutmore, and Dave Green is alongside. How are you, Dave? Just fine, Bob. Thank you kindly for asking. We're going to talk about murder today, Dave. Right, murder. Murder, most foul. It's a murder that took place a long time ago. And, you know, and sometimes I have um, personally some qualms about writing stuff that happened too far back because my basic audience for my a newspaper column focused on history and, and the books, uh, the latest, of course, being Lost Mohawk Valley, are people who are still alive. So people who are still alive don't remember the way things were back in the 1800s, or the 1700s, the 1600s. But of course, we're talking history. But you, about, you, but you do. <laughs> yes, I do. Not all, you know, not as often as many, because I, I sort of know what is the bread and butter. You know, the people like to hear about stuff that happened, I would say, from 30 to 60 years ago. All right. It's about the thing. But this goes all the way back to 1895 in Amsterdam. Murder most foul, Dave. Let me read you the headline that I wrote for this little piece. Saloon Keeper. Does that have your interest? Uh, well, I'm sure it would have yours. All right. It has my interest, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Saloon Keeper slain by paramour. In other words, girlfriend. Uh, all right. But it's a common we're, story. We're listening. You know? Yeah, these things happen. A woman named Florence Hahn, spelled H-A-U-N, Florence Hahn. We're going to hear a lot about her in the next few minutes. Rushed, rushed into the Amsterdam police station on Wednesday morning, November 6th, 1895, and blurted out, my God, I have killed Charlie. Hawn then collapsed. Police then rushed to the second floor of the bank building at the corner of Church and East Main Streets in Amsterdam, and they found saloon keeper Charles Landry dead in a pool of blood. Landry had been struck by three bullets from Hawn's revolver. A fourth shot had gone wild. He was killed in his aviary. His aviary. Well, I'm asking, what is that? Yeah. It's a place where you keep birds. And since that was a common thing then, they didn't explain why he kept birds, except to say that it was a side business. My hunch, and it really is just that, my hunch is that he was raising racing pigeons. Yeah, that was my guess. Yeah, which I know was a big thing in Amsterdam through the years. And I looked up on Wikipedia about racing pigeons and they became a fad, if you will, I think somewhere in the middle of the 1800s. It, so. was, it was their version of drones, Bob. <laughs> That's true. It was their version of drones. Register your birds with the FAA. Could be. So Landry killed in his aviary. Who's Landry? I mean, I said he's a saloon keeper. He's a former prize fighter. And he also was a Democratic politician. His saloon was on the first floor of the building where he had the aviary. In other words, he's on the second floor uh, with the birds, and the first floor was his saloon. What about the murderer, or murderess, as they called, called them back then, when it was a woman? Originally, her name was Florence Kelderhouse, and she was from Copake in Columbia County. She had married Mr. Hahn, Henry Hahn, in Hudson, New York. The young couple moved to Amsterdam, 
where Florence worked in the mills, and guess where Henry worked? He tended bar for Mr. Landry. Hawn, 21, and the bar owner, Landry, 27, had an affair so intense that she rented quarters to be near the saloon. Landry had a wife, a young son. Landry's wife and Hawn's husband urged the saloon keeper and Hawn to break off this romance. The night before the murder, Landry and Florence Hawn went to a dance at Liedercrans Hall, where Landry told her he was ending their relationship. It's Splitsville, lady. According to Hahn, she told police that after the dance, he beat her with a broom and choked her. She then bought the revolver the next day She and went to the aviary the next day. And one newspaper account had it that before the shooting, Landry wrestled the gun from Hahn, but perhaps you might say in a key mistake, then gave it back to her. Hahn's husband was among those who converged at the police station following her arrest. He arranged for her lawyer, very magnanimous gentleman, I would say, you know, doing that for his wife. Uh, in fact, it was a good lawyer, a, a judge in Amsterdam, became Hahn's attorney. And the case became a sensation in the media of the day. It was covered by newspapers all across upstate New York, also in New York City, and somewhat in other states. There was outrage, but some sympathy for Florence Hahn, described as a woman of slight figure, girlish look, blonde hair, and blue eyes. The victim, Landry, was regarded as lacking a sense of morals. However, he had popularity in Amsterdam. At his funeral, there was a large procession organized by the Artisan's Masonic Lodge, where he was a member. When the trial got underway, which was in February of the following year, a man named Raymond Chrisman enters this story. Raymond Chrisman, really all I found out about him is what said in the newspapers, was a married local businessman of some prominence in Amsterdam. And Chrisman took a keen interest in Florence Hahn. When the trial began in February 1896, he was heard to exclaim, I'm not sure if he just did this on the street or did it in court or whatever, but Mr. Chrisman said, Florence must not die. Florence was convicted of second-degree murder. Did New York State have the death penalty back then, Bob? Yes, it did. But she didn't get it. She was uh, convicted of second-degree murder and handed a life sentence. And maybe this gets back to your native Syracuse. I'm not really sure where this is. She was to serve her sentence at the women's prison in Auburn, New York. Still there. Well, the the women's prison, there's still a maximum security prison in Auburn. Yeah. I don't know uh, if there's a woman's section, or I don't think so. Well, well, this was specifically where there was a women's prison was in Auburn, New York. And Florence Hahn is sentenced, life in prison. But the Auburn newspaper reports, quote, the prisoner, that's Florence Hahn, is seriously afflicted with lung trouble, and her incarceration in jail will soon end her earthly career. 
it is not thought she can live another year in prison. In actual fact, Florence Hahn, when she was sent to prison, was dying from tuberculosis. How old was she at that point, Bob? She was 22 or 3. 22, I think. Raymond Chrisman, remember him? That's the businessman uh, that said Florence must not die. Yeah, we're hanging in here, Bob. He uh, visited her in jail. He tried to get her to uh, see the faith, you know, to become a uh, a Christian. Uh, or maybe she was, always was a Christian, but, you know, he encouraged her in her um, religion, and she uh, agreed. I mean, she started uh, getting instruction or something from a, I think it was an Episcopal minister. And Chrisman then took what I thought was rather an unusual step. He adopted Hahn. You know, as, as his daughter. And he bought a burial plot at Green Hill Cemetery in Amsterdam. And Chrisman also bought and installed a monument with this inscription, Florence Viola Chrisman. Viola must have been her middle name, and see, he's adopting her. He, as far as he's concerned, she's Florence Chrisman, not Florence Hahn. So the mo- memorial said, Florence Viola Chrisman sacred to the memory of a wrong child, dead to the world, but alive in Christ. Now, another, what I thought was strange twist to the story, there was an outcry against the idea of burying Florence Hahn at the Green Hill Cemetery. The people that, you know, had relatives and friends buried at Green Hill thought it was, it was bad, it wasn't a good idea. And the Green Hill Board of Directors was under pressure. And they researched state law, and they found an out for themselves. State law said that a cemetery has the right to refuse burial to convicts. So even though he had bought the plot, was his plot, erected the, the monument, his monument, they said you can't bury Florence here. Is that and law the, still on the books? That I don't know. And the monument was removed. They took it away. Chrisman then took his plight to the Pine Grove Cemetery in Tribes Hill, asked them to allow the burial. No soap, no dice. They refused. He went to the third cemetery who let let him in. Uh, This is a cemetery in Minaville, what is the town of Florida. Uh, You know, it's a hamlet, the town of Florida, south of Amsterdam. I you know, did a fair amount of research for this, this story, but I, I must admit, I'm, I'm kind of looking for, it, it appeared not long ago in the paper, you know, some maybe some more leads will come in. I'm not positive which cemetery this is. There is a big cemetery, a uh, fairly big or an historic one, on uh, Route 30 in Minaville called the Chuctanunda Cemetery. My hunch is that that's where she's buried. And also, I think he may have brought his monument with him that says Florence Viola Chrisman, sacred to the memory of a wrong child, dead to the world, but alive in Christ. And maybe sometime in the spring, Dave, you and I will go look for it. Florence Viola Hawn Chrisman died in prison on March 8th, 1897. She asked to be prepared for burial as if she was a girl in her teens. She was therefore, or the decision was made to dress her in a white smock 
with a white ribbon around her neck and hanging from that a silver cross she had worn for months. Her body was taken to an Amsterdam funeral home. Large crowd paid their respects. And I say this uh, murder, in a way, divided the community. There were those that thought she was terrible. There were those that thought probably that Raymond Crispin was you know, at least eccentric for what he what he was doing, adopting the woman and having her buried and so forth. Or or in love with her. Or in love with her. Yes, maybe I, I should have said that first. Yes, of course, of course, that's what people thought, that he, because apparently she was a very beautiful woman. And anyway, uh, he, or you know, he didn't personally, but her body was taken to an Amsterdam funeral home where there was a large crowd that paid their respects. But according to the one newspaper account, after the service, her remains in a, in a casket were taken to the cemetery in Minaville, and the crowd didn't come. Following the, uh, oh, the carriage that was carrying the casket was a solitary carriage, just one carriage containing one person, Raymond Christman. And that's the story of the 1895 murder, Dave. And nothing more ever became of it. Years later, nothing came along to add or subtract from the story. Just not not that I know the century of, but, story. But I'm again. I'm I'm waiting for corrections. Uh, I, I'm told, you know, in the in the old what would you call it history community. I talked to a, a woman who helps me a lot with research, and she said, "Well, I think maybe somebody." And she named another historical researcher has been working on this. But I'm I just wanted to let it get into print because I've got most of it here. Oh, and I didn't explain how I came to the uh, story to begin with. I didn't put the gentleman's name in the, in the story. And honestly, I, I'd have to look it up to, to find it. But uh, other you know, people who write about Amsterdam history and heard of the murder of Charles Landry uh, by uh, Florence Hahn. I hadn't. And I was doing a book signing at the open door in Schenectady. And after I was there a while, they said, you know, you should go outside and sit. <laughs> I, don't know if, I, I took a shower that day and everything. But, you know, it was a nice day. And, you know, they're right on a pedestrian mall. And um, so, you know, the thought was this could boost business a little bit. So I was out there and this guy passing by me and he sort of slowed down. And, and I was able to, you know, drag him in. I don't know. Yes, he did. I think I even convinced him to buy a book. But and then we started talking, and he said, "You know, I've got this picture of a, a relative of mine who, you know, hundred year over a hundred years ago was murdered. In other words, he's a, somehow descended from uh, Charles Landry." So uh, he uh, he said, "I got this picture." I said, "Gee, can you send it to me?" And lo and behold, sometime after that, he did. And I don't know if you remember in the story they just told that at Landry's funeral there was this big procession of the Masonic Order, the uh, Artisan's Lodge. And that's what the picture shows. It shows all these men lined up, and I think it, you can see Landry's casket. And I must say, the, the men look really serious. Almost looks like they, you know, you wouldn't want to cross them, if you will. And maybe it's because what they were doing was kind of controversial in the community. You know, there were those who thought that, you know, Landry got his just desserts. But, you know, these people were his friends, you know, and they're standing by him. I think I'd like to move on. I didn't purposely, I didn't uh, say what we were going to cover uh, at the start because 
I never know because sometimes we get going and uh, we talk about this, that, and the other thing. For example, and again, I don't have, maybe somebody would communicate with us here at uh, the Historians Podcast. When you talk about pictures from centuries ago, uh, I saw this on TV, so it must be true. Uh, I'm just kidding. Frederick Douglass. <laughs> yeah, we know you are. You know, Frederick Douglass, you know, the famous um, black leader of, of the 1800s. Frederick Douglass was either the most photographed or the second most photographed person of the 19th century. I've seen many of his pictures, and he's never smiling. No, never smiling. And he did this by design because his idea was that people, you know, they, they treated African Americans as non-people. You know, they, they were almost like invisible. So he wanted to leave behind a lot of pictures. And so he took every opportunity he could to have a picture taken. Smart move. Yeah. But, and you know, he was a good-looking man and all that. But um, so, well, that's a little aside. Maybe at the time, I'm kind of stuck on the thought about smiling, Bob, but maybe at the time, that's that was the gift. Please do not smile. You well, can almost during, hear, yeah. Yeah, uh, the length of history, now, you know, be the pretentious twit that I am, I really, again, I really don't know, but I, uh, when I was in college, studied 18th century British literature, and I want to say that smiling or laughter was frowned upon in some quarters. <laughs> so to I mean? speak. Yeah. It wasn't seen as a, you know, a thing that a, a gentleman or a lady did. But right, you right, you're not you're not here. You're not going to have a family picture taken because you're having a good time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But now with our selfies and all that, you know, we're smiling all the time, Dave. Yeah. Who would know those photographers? Photographers at the time, if they had any idea that someday they'd actually sell a stick that you could hold your camera. <laughs> I know. <laughs> in which you'd hold your camera. In fact, I remember my son's wedding, which took place a few months ago. His, he, they, one thing they did do was a very simple wedding. They hired a photographer. He was a, the local, one of the local newspaper uh, photographers. That's that's where they got that's where they got the term, Bob. It's better than a stick in the eye. Yeah, but he said, "I hate to see those sticks." Uh, yeah. Everybody's out there taking pictures of themselves. Really? Yeah. They could use a professional like me. Once again, socially unacceptable, Bob. Yeah, you know another well, device that connects to the device, the original device that's socially unacceptable. Now you got a phone, you got a stick to put it on. Both yeah. no good. Well, well, speaking of socially unacceptable or politically incorrect, perhaps we'll spend the the rest of our little chat today on the historian podcast talking about Mohawk Tommy. I don't personally tell me all about it. All right, uh, the story starts with Mohawk carpet mills which were in Amsterdam. My father worked there. He was a weaver. And, you know, they just chose that name. There were English people, the Shuttleworth family, that founded Mohawk Carpets. And they took the name because of, you know, it's the name, you know, Mohawk Valley, the Mohawk Indian tribe, Mohawk Nation. So they, you know, there are a lot of businesses that took the name Mohawk. And over the years, Mohawk Carpet has used some sort of Indian person uh, or a depiction of one as a symbol. It was a rather stately-looking um, Native American, not smiling, Dave, I would say, who is on the brand, or, you know, it was, it was right on the carpet. You, know, you, turn, you used to turn the old carpets over. It had a band on the edge, you know, that said Mohawk carpets, and then also the 
the logo, if you oh, will, and right. the logo for Mohawk carpets was an Indian, Native American. One presumes a Mohawk. I don't really know what the Mohawks thought of this. That'd be another thing to find out. I mean, there's certainly there's a lot of controversy about using Native American symbols. In well, that, they probably didn't. They didn't like it. They didn't like it. But at the time, what they had to realize, or we all had to realize, was they didn't like it. But it would take 150 years for anybody to begin to say anything about it. <laughs> That's true. That's right. Took a long time. I think Mohawk carpets may even still use Mohawk Tommy. At least there's a um, depiction of Mohawk Tommy at a big rug store, carpet store, in Denver, Colorado. But Mohawk Tommy was a little Indian, like a child Indian. All right. And it was basically a cartoon character. <clears throat> and it's best known to people like me who grew up in Amsterdam and you know, were the offspring of Mohawk factory workers. It's, oh, you know, well, nobody sees it, I forget. You can see me the way we do this. <laughs> We're not on TV, I'm sorry. Right. But I have up on my shelf here in my little office a Mohawk Tommy bank. <laughs> All right. And, and no doubt, and no doubt like fact, a, oh. Every so often on Facebook, on one of the Amsterdam um, interest groups, somebody will say, oh, remember the Mohawk? And then, of course, they'll have this whole discussion about political incorrectness. And I say most people are proud to own their Mohawk Tommy bank. I'm not necessarily proud, but as uh, a friend of mine, in fact, I'll name him because he's helped me with the research on this not yet a story story, uh, Jerry Snyder, that we've had on the show from Historic Amsterdam League. In fact, he mentioned this on the show, that uh, Mohawk had the symbol Mohawk Tommy. And, you know, that's just history. I mean, that's the way it was. Um, I, if they use the symbol today, I'd you know, I don't think it's their main thing. But back in the early 1950s, when Mohawk Carpets was uh, really moving ahead in terms of selling carpets, um, they used this the symbol of Mohawk Tommy a lot, or that's when it was created. In fact, um, Jerry Snyder, as I say, did the research, and he found one blog online, and a man named, or a woman, no, I think it's a man, named uh, Kevin Kidney, who looked into it and even dates the creation of Mohawk Tommy in uh, 1952. And it, again, he was a little uh, Indian wearing a loincloth. Maybe the word Mohawk was across the loincloth. One sort of goofy looking feather. Well, what happened after the um, character was created, and I think it was created by Mohawk in-house up in Amsterdam, they hired the Walt Disney Studio to do commercials for them based on Mohawk Tommy. Disney needed money to build Disneyland at this period. And so he started doing commercials, not just for Mohawk, but for other companies, you know, national ad campaigns, you know, basically to raise money. It was considered beneath a, a Hollywood studio to do it. So I'm, I'm searching here in this man's um, blog, but I haven't quite, oh, but they, the company that actually did the work was called Hurrell Productions, H-U-R-R-E-L-L, -L, who was a famous photographer named George Hurrell, who was related to Disney. He married his niece or something like that. Or his, uh, well, anyway, he was related to, to Disney. But really, it basically was a Disney operation, even though they didn't call it that. And if you look at the way they depicted a Mohawk Tommy, and you can find this online, you can probably, folks can probably search for it on Google. 
it does look like a Disney creature or creation. It reminds me, I think, didn't Disney do a Hiawatha movie at one time? It seems so. Yeah. But anyway, so because Mohawk Tommy is not the only one who appears in the commercials. I watched one in which Mohawk Tommy plants carpet seeds. So you see him out there <laughs> scattering seeds, then they start to grow. And he's accompanied by... Chatter the squirrel, who really <laughs> this, looks like a This dude. is getting worse. I don't know if yeah, it's getting no. better or and worse. And get this. Chatter the squirrel also has a headband and an arrow. <laughs> so, you mean so, to tell me that's where I got all of my rugs, Bob? They came they, up in a cornfield somewhere. And t- Mohawk Tommy in the commercials had a girlfriend named Minnehaha. Of course. But they shortened it. Remember, this is the Disney people. Right. They shortened it to Minnie. So just like uh, Minnie Mouse, we had right. Minnie. I was going to say the mini. I'm now I'm associating the minis. Yep. To the pearls and to the mouses, right? So anyway, they did several of these uh, ads on TV. There were cartoon ads, and they uh, Mohawk had a well-known song. I think I might have sung it on the show before. Carpets. <laughs> Get ready. The room of Mohawk. Carpets for your rooms by Mohawk. But they did a kind of. Disney-esque version of it. You know, they had a... It was a real light touch to it. I mean, in other Mohawk commercials, the, the boom, 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 they would emphasize the drums and stuff, but this was, you know, real upbeat and light, bright, and tight, as we used to say in radio. And so they did the ads, and, you know, that was really basically ends of stories. I say, it isn't a story yet. It's still being formed because somebody had posted, and I won't even give the name, somebody had posted on this blog a comment to the discussion saying my dad and this, I won't name the dad was a commercial artist and cartoonist for Mohawk carpet mills in Amsterdam in the 1950s my family maintains that he created Mohawk Tommy unfortunately dad never received due credit from Disney or anyone for the character he created family felt he had been blindsided and ripped off it'd be nice to know the truth of what exactly, or uh, yeah, exactly transpired. So, yeah, right. uh, put it. We're lining them up today, Bob. <laughs> yes, indeed, we're lining them up. Oh, and I mentioned that you can see Mohawk Tommy in Denver, and uh, my friend Jerry Snyder uh, has confirmed this for me. But on this gentleman's uh, blog, there's a picture of Westcraft carpets, and they've got a huge. Sign animated, not animated. You know, it's like a made out of steel. I mean, it, it's a depiction of Mohawk Tommy, but it's big and it's over a roadway. To uh, and it looks a little bit the worst for wear because it's been there for decades. But they they've kept it there in Denver, Colorado. Well, again, um, thanks to Jerry Snyder for the that research. Um, oh, and he tried to find the man whose family says he was uh, blindsided and ripped off, but. Uh, so far, he hasn't been able to, you know, make a connection with somebody who uh, actually lived in Amsterdam. So if you're related to that somebody, do get in touch. Bob Cutmore at Yahoo.com uh, would be the email address. Or you can find me on Facebook. I'm the guy who's author of several books on history, by the way, Dave. Uh, one including Lost Mohawk Valley. And we're just uh, about dang out of time, Dave. It, it does look that way. So I, I hope you have a good day. And uh We'll be talking to you soon. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cutmore.